0: Welcome to Head on a Platter with me, Nikki Del Sol. I want to continue this series, Let's Talk About Sex. So technically this will be part two. And I figured we could go into the toxicity surrounding s- sex in church, but also how the church deals with sexual sin. There's more often than not a negative connotation of sex in church and that's usually because we're only talking about it in the context of having sex outside of marriage or if you are in a marriage then committing adultery so that's usually the time where we're that's really the only time that sex is talked about and considering that God created sex and the fact that it's not only this amazing expression of love and commitment and security. It is also, it's procreation. We're creating life. You're combining yourself and another person that hopefully you love and adore and have committed to. And you are combining yourselves in such a way that you create a being out of the two of you. So I don't know why that part isn't talked about as much where a lot of the focus is, okay, if we're going to talk about sex, they remind me of the the gym teacher in Mean Girls where he says, well, don't have sex because you will get pregnant and die. And well, technically, I mean, he's not wrong. Yeah, if you if you have sex, you, you probably will get pregnant and eventually you'll die. I mean, that's probably not gonna be the reason, hopefully with modern medicine, but you get where I'm going with this it's this very antiquated and shameful tactic, honestly, of just, okay, if we have to talk about this, let's just make sure you're not doing it. And that's the end of that. And I don't think that that is helpful to anyone. I would say the general reaction to having sex outside of marriage, while it is a sin, obviously, but it's met with such shaming and a lot of judgment, and very harsh judgment, and I would even argue more so than other sins that you see. So my question is why is sexual sin so much more easy to condemn? Why does it hold our attention more than someone being jealous or someone not honoring their parents? Maybe because, I mean, it's not as scary as murder, but it's more public and more fascinating than, you know, a little white lie, obviously. And I also don't understand why sex is talked about so negatively in the church, because it is such a natural part of us. It's one of our driving factors. You know, we're driven by physiological safety and then our biological needs and that happens to be one of them and this idea that well the more we the more we suppress and we ignore and just kind of you know stamp down and hopefully just bury this well maybe it'll just go away and then we don't have to talk about it so we won't sin i i'm sorry that i don't think i think that's so backwards and call me crazy for this but I almost feel as though now I do feel as though we need to be talking about sex. Now I, that's not to say um, given in light of these recent events, especially with sexual education in children and how they're being exposed to certain things that are probably inappropriate in general for children, but especially at this age. However, there definitely are stages of sexual development in children that they can understand. The first step of that being is we need to start teaching consent and that's just simple. That doesn't have to be sexual. That's just, you know, one of the basic fundamentals that kids should be learning. And then later that'll, it'll be able, they'll be able to more easily connect that to sex, you know, and it's letting kids, hopefully when you teach them young and they turn into young adults and then, you know, from teenagers to adults, that they can grasp this concept. But I may be getting ahead of myself there. Um, going back to why is sexual sin so much more condemned? Why is it so taboo to even talk about these things? And it reminds me of of two women in the Bible. Uh, there was the woman at the well that meets Jesus and the woman brought to Jesus that was caught in adultery. So I think the next logical question is how do you deal with someone who has committed sexual sin? And I think we have this idea of putting a bandaid on the situation of, well, if we guilt them and shame them, that'll definitely change their behavior. And maybe it will for a time until they either completely withdraw into themselves and kind of give up in defeat or they rebel and they just decide, well, you know what? People's opinions aren't worth taking into account anyway. So neither of these two extremes are godly, Christ-like ways of helping people deal with this. So I think it might be useful to think of maybe instead of putting a band-aid and just treating the action, we need to treat the behavior and maybe the root cause. And that leads me to a couple of questions off the top of my head of why people are, you know, just choosing to have sex just outside of a, a committed relationship like a marriage. And I don't want to isolate, um, the non-believers either. So I'll, I'll just say committed relationship, um, just to make everybody feel included. Um, So the root of the problem, well, if we look at sex for what it is and what it is used for, like I mentioned previously, it is a joining of souls. It is as close as you can physically be to someone. And when you are physically that close, it's supposed to be symbolic of how close you are emotionally. And within that closeness are things like love, respect, kindness, playfulness even, and security. Those are the things that you are blessed to experience in a committed relationship. So if we look at sex as a means of connection, not just merely procreation, but connection and an expression of love, then it leads me to believe that one of the root problems are maybe people are using sex... Um, as a means of connection, they're doing. They could be perhaps doing it incorrectly, but maybe what they the root of the problem is maybe they feel ignored, maybe they feel even undesirable, and doing this, having sex, makes them feel empowered. It makes them feel like somebody loves me. It, it mimics that closeness that maybe they're missing in their everyday lives, um, whether it be from an actual romantic partner or perhaps even close friendships or familial relationships as well. And I think because, you know, we know God built us for connection, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but also there is this idea of perhaps the underlying issues that people are really experiencing. It's something else, but it's manifesting as having sex outside of marriage or having sex, I don't want to say incorrectly, but more recklessly to where it's not following the guidelines set forth by God. So it really makes me think, how did Jesus handle something like this? And that is where we can get into these two examples. And I'll go into the... I'll go to the woman who caught in adultery. So in John chapter eight, verse three. So essentially, uh, the Pharisees bring a woman who was found to be having sex with a man who is not her husband, and they, I guess, they catch her in the act, and they bring her to Jesus. I mean, my first question is, how did you know this? How did they know that she that that man was not her husband, and how did they catch her in the? Act? Not the point. But also something to think of, you know, were they just waiting? What were they doing? Were they waiting just to catch her and then just bring her to Jesus so he can say something wrong? Which that's actually, they say that in the next verse. So Jesus says, uh, okay, so we found this, um, the Pharisees say, so we found this woman, Jesus. She was having sex with someone who is not her husband. And Jewish law says that we we can stone her to death. So they're, and they say, what do you say about that? And their, their intention is not particularly finding justice for, you know, the man and woman because they had sex outside of marriage. They're really using this to trap Jesus into saying something incorrect. And they used a very obvious sin to try to do so. So they're, they're weaponizing sex in this, in this case. And Jesus says this wonderful response. And it really emulates this non judgment here in, in chapter eight, verse seven. And he asks, He asks the Pharisees, okay, uh, who hasn't done anything wrong between all of you? They can go first. Whoever is without sin can cast the first stone. And then he kind of writes in the sand. And somehow people just decide, you know what? Uh, I'm going to go. So the older people first and then everyone else. And then he's left alone with this woman. And he says to her, where are they? Where do they go? And she goes, well, Jesus, they all left. So are you going to condemn me? And I love what he says in John 8, 11. He says, I don't want to punish you. I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. So it's not that Jesus says, you know, sweetie, you know, yes, queen, do whatever you want. I love you anyway, which he does. He does love her. And he loves all of us that have previously, you know, fallen to sexual sin. He does love us. But the second part of verse 11 in chapter 8 is, go and sin no more. He says, I will not punish you, but go and sin no more. It's a very explicit, it's an explicit command. And I say command because it, it's spoken with authority, but I want to be careful of having the connotation of it's a it's it's all powerful and unjust and arbitrary. And to be honest, yeah, it is. I mean, Jesus is God incarnate. Of course he has that kind of authority. But this authority is rooted in such love for this woman and for us. And anyone else who has experienced this and kind of that shame and guilt and realizing, God, I'm I'm very I'm out of whack right now. I'm I'm having sex. I'm feeling emptier and emptier the more I keep sharing this part of myself with people. And whether you're a man or a woman, um, I challenge you to think of why are you choosing to join with people that you have not committed to for your entire life? And that may sound crazy, especially... If you're not particularly a believer, you're like, well, why not? I have to, I have to try them out and make sure that we're compatible that way. Because if not, I'm going to be unhappy in my marriage and all of those, all of those other preconceived notions and such. But I think in order to help combat this sexual sin, it's not having people stamp out their sexuality. It's not having them bury their sexual desires because God invented sex. He, he created this and he said it was good. Read back to Genesis when he's, after he's created Adam and Eve and they find each other and they discover each other and they're into each other. It's hot. They're like, wow. Oh my gosh. Adam's like, wow. I went to sleep for a little bit, missing a rib. And now I have this woman who's my helper and I love her. And Eve, coming from I just came from man and I just I want to serve him and I want to I want to be with him that's incredible that's amazing Mm -hmm. and for anyone saying that God hates sex or he's he's this giant prude I really challenge you to read Song of Solomon it's hot and the amount of times breasts are mentioned and how many times that book says, "Let her breasts satisfy you at all times," is beyond me. And if I didn't know any better, I would read that thinking, "There's no way this came from the Bible." Especially with all of the all of the attitudes and all the projections I had um, about Christianity and about Jesus and about church, even just back in the day. Not, I would even say, not too long ago. Uh, maybe even just you know five, six years ago, which isn't that long of a time, if you think about it. But essentially, we need to reframe sex and start talking about it in the context that God has designed. We can't only talk about this when someone has used it incorrectly or has sinned. I think, and there there is some, some psychology in this, um, I can't remember the exact study, but the human mind can't, truly comprehend the negative so if you say don't think of an elephant well surprise surprise what did you just think of you thought of an elephant even i just i just told you not to i just told you don't do that but you did it feel bad and be shamed for it it's the same thing with sex where except we're not saying don't think of an elephant we're saying well don't have sex and you know don't lust after people and don't look at people who aren't you know you're not with and, and don't do this and naturally, we're going to do it. And God gave us these desires for people. It's not a coincidence. It's not It's not shameful, and it shouldn't be guilt-inducing, you know? Now, there is, I want to err on the side of caution and be sure that my message is clear where I'm not saying, oh, yeah, you know, do whatever you want and lust after everyone. Not saying that. Not saying that, you know? Like, we did read um, in John chapter 8 where he says, I forgive you for the sin you committed, but don't stop yourself from doing it. you know? So in my attempt to bridge these two things together, of uh, the psychology of how we are able to build habits and, and whatnot, you have to focus on what we should be doing. And to interject some more personal um, personal experiences and such. I would recommend giving this part of yourself, your, sexual, your sexuality, and giving it to God and having him help you through it. And we don't need to hide this from God. Number one, because he already knows. He created you. He knows every single thought that has ever passed into your mind, out of it, and the thoughts that will come and go as well. So there's really no hiding from him, there's no point. So with that logic, we might as well bring this to him. If we are struggling with sexual sin, if we're struggling with lust or pornography or jealousy or adultery, whatever you wanna call it, I would set that at his feet and say, I'm really struggling with this and I want to change, I want to be better. And that doesn't mean that he's going to magically snap his fingers and you're going to be cured of all lust. That would be a miracle. Don't get me wrong. However, God does want you to develop as a human being. And he wants you to take this journey with him and through him and side by side with him. And Jesus will be there to help you. And it's this, it's a symbiotic relationship of We as the sinner have an issue, the desires of our flesh. And rather than trying to fool God and try to hide them, hide these from him, and just act like they don't exist, let's run to him. Let's bring this to him and and admit to him, God, I I am a sexual being that you created. These are not bad. These are natural feelings for me, but help me to manage them. Help me to overcome them, and overcome the temptation that I am faced with. And just simply giving that to God and asking for his help, that is where the journey starts. Because to be honest, God is an amazing God and he knows all of your needs before you even ask for them. But the master of consent himself does not want to just step in and save you if you don't want to be saved. And that statement even goes farther than sexual sin, sin as a whole, just any part of your relationship with God. He wants to have your permission. He wants your love. And when you trust someone to have your best interest at heart, and you trust that they're looking out for you, and you trust that they're good, then that's where you submit and it becomes an easier process, man or woman. And it may be a little bit easier for women to do this because just of just because of the way God made us, we are the helper. We were taken from Adam. You know, there is a role that we fit into. It's a little bit easier for women to conceptualize being in love with God and submitting to Him. Now, on the other hand, uh, for men the submission is also still there. It's for you, it's not so much being the helper, but it's learning to embody the type of person that you need to protect as well. So as men submit to God, you're also removing your own ego from this, which is incredible. The sin of pride, sometimes, I don't know, something, maybe this is just a me thing, but pride, lust, all of those, they all sort of go hand in hand sometimes. And I would say that both genders, though they are built differently, can learn the same lesson of submitting to God, especially in this category. And even to share something a little bit more personal, um, it was a long journey for me to give every part of myself to God. There were, it was not an overnight thing. It was not, this has been years kind of in the making. And my sexuality was one of the last pieces that I was still holding on to that I just, I did not want to give to him because for me, it was an outlet. It was something positive in my life. And, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and and pretend I'm a saint because I'm not, Um, I have made mistakes. I have sinned in this way. But I know that God's grace is bigger than that. And it's bigger than yours too. No matter what you have done in this life up to this point right now, God does not look at you any differently. Jesus does not look at you any differently. He looks at you as though you are this perfect being whom they both love and adore. And that's the wonderful thing here about this. And To quickly touch on the other woman, the woman at the well, Um, to give you some context for people who aren't as familiar with the story. So Jesus is in Samaria, I believe, and um, he's at a well, and there's a woman that is coming to the well to fill it up in the middle of the day. Don't ask me why, but for some reason, doing that action in the middle of the day by yourself as an unaccompanied woman you were a harlot for that, for some reason. I don't know. Not sure the context. We'll get there. So she goes to the well, and Jesus asks her for a drink. She says, "Hey, you're you're Jewish. You shouldn't be talking to me. Uh, our cultures don't do that." And Jesus pays no mind to that because he loves everyone. This woman just doesn't know it yet. So this is a uh, this is John chapter four, just for just for reference. And she says, um, you don't even have a you don't even have a, a pail how are you going to take the water and Jesus says something in verse 13 where he says everyone who drinks from this well will be thirsty again but i can give people a different kind of water that's 13 to 14 and essentially he he lets her know you know i know you are presently committing adultery i know you're having sex outside of marriage and i I know your past and the woman's reaction is well if you know this about me you must be the messiah she immediately knows who jesus is and she goes to tell people and the fact that jesus being who he was knowing that he's jewish and this woman is a samaritan and that those cultures um they didn't they didn't get along and they didn't they didn't mingle with each other Just him doing that alone is a big step and in the right direction, because those things shouldn't matter. Where you come from shouldn't matter. And the way you have sinned shouldn't matter because we are all sinners. And the way Jesus meets her where she's at and treats her like a person and completely ridding himself of that boundary of, I can't talk to you because I'm Jewish and you're Samaritan, that does wonders for her. And she feels accepted. And he meets her where she's at. And again, you know, he says the same thing of, I I don't judge you. I love you. And please don't do this anymore. Not because, and here's the thing, the whole point of continuing this discussion on sex is God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they're not telling us not to have sex because they don't want us to enjoy ourselves or they don't trust us or something negative like the world would have you believe. God designed sex to be something special shared between people who have committed to each other. And that's the way it makes sense. And people wonder why breakups are so hard. It's, it's not that, it's not rocket science. You're joining together in this soul bonding connection and then you decide later you want to break up and now you have to rip those souls apart and i know it's hard to conceptualize sometimes if you're not a christian thinking okay yeah well i just had sex with someone it's fine it's not literally like i'm attached to them no and that's the thing you're, you're not physically attached to them once the sex is over you know however as much as maybe it's uncomfortable to admit but we are Spiritual beings. We are souls inhabiting a human form, a physical, corporeal form. And just because it's that's not usually where we operate from all the time, though if you're a Christian, that's kind of where you should be in that mentality, in the spiritual mentality, it does happen. And it's more easily done if you aren't aware of that, if you aren't aware of the spiritual tie that it creates. So... God is not saying don't have sex because you don't deserve it or I don't want you to have fun or I'm keeping something from you. He's saying, I want you to refrain from having sex until you have submitted to me to where I can help you find your final third person. And I'll explain that concept. You know, God existed um, as the Trinity before he created man and before he created the world. It's him, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was already there in the beginning. It says that in in, um, in the Gospels, where Jesus was there at the start. And I think in Genesis, it's also referenced in a couple more places. So he exists in this perfect harmony in the Trinity. And when we join together with someone else in a marriage, we become one flesh. Also, it's it's us and that other person, but also with God. So we're essentially emulating the Trinity in this way. So that's why God says, join with only one person, because how can you have a Trinity if it's you and Johnny and Stephanie and Trisha and whoever? Well that's not the perfect three. That's not the harmony that we're emulating. That's disruption, that's chaos, that's disorder. So it's not God saying, I don't want you to have sex. He's asking you for your benefit please wait, submit to me and build your relationship with me. So you even know how to be in a relationship. And that way, when you're ready to find your third person to where now that you and I are already joined, now let's get your final third piece, not the other half, like other people would have you believe or how the world would have you believe, because if you're finding your other half, Well, that three concept, that third, you're taking away God and you're just making it you and the other person. And sure, um, I'm not saying non-Christians don't have healthy relationships and there are Christians who have unhealthy relationships. It goes either way. It's more how intentionally or how intentional you're being in trying to be more Christ-like in your relationships and your soul bonds in that case. Well, soul bond in this case. So it's more please refrain until you find that last piece of your puzzle. You are already complete in yourself. He made you a whole person and we were built for a relationship with him. And if it is in his plan, he will bring you the one that is meant for you. Now there is some work to be done on your part. There is you know, it's not, you just get to lie back and relax and say, okay, God, drop him off at my door, like an Amazon package and make sure he's here by, you know, 6:30 PM. Not exactly how it goes. We have to do the work. We have to do the healing and we have to continuously strive to be more Christ-like. And we love our partner the way Christ loves us. We are his bride. And maybe that's weird. It's a weird concept to think of, but it's true. And the more we can emulate Christ in our relationships, the better and more solid and more long lasting these relationships will be.